from the Duck South Studios in Morgan City, Mississippi. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I want to punch you in the face so bad right now. This is the On The X podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Get the governor harumph. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Today's episode is brought to you by Advantage Multi from Bayer. Advantage Multi is veterinarian's number one choice in the prevention of heartworms, fleas, roundworms, hookworms, and whipworms. Treats and controls sarcoptic mange. Make sure your dog is protected by using Advantage Multi. I said what I said and I'll stand by it to the death. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? And now, here are your hosts, Jay Paul Jackson. You just love to hear yourself talk, don't you? Even when you're not saying anything. Rocky LaFleur. Yo, Adrian! Adrian! Houston Kennedy. Please, Houston, we have a problem. And Josh Webb. Coons. We're raccoons trying to get on our back porch. Mama just chased them off with a broom. Welcome to the On The Edge podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I'm Rocky LaFleur. And as always, I've got my partner in crime, Mr. Josh Webb, and Jake is back with us this week. Um, Jake, I don't guess you got any of the the snowstorm Stella or whatever blizzard Stella or whatever they called it when it rolled across y'all. Man, we didn't get right now. It is seventy-seven degrees in Colorado, and. I mean, it looks like a summer day here. People are wearing shorts and tank tops right now. It's sort of, uh, I don't know, it's definitely out of the ordinary, but um, my buddies out in Pennsylvania, the guys that work for me, they got hammered with snow yesterday, so I don't know what's going on. 77, man, it's, it's Josh, what is it, 40, <laughs> 45 here? Yeah, 45, 46 here is the high today. Oh, yeah, it, yeah that, that's funny. It's just crazy how the weather does this time of year. Um, because yeah, this I mean, is usually this is usually a big snow month for y'all, right, Jay? Yeah, April, March, and April are the two biggest mo- uh, snow months of the year in Colorado. And so, but you know, I was actually thinking about this earlier in the uh, winter when you know mi- the mild trend really started getting noticed. Um, it's time. It's you know everything's cyclical, and of course that old buzzword of of uh, global warming's you know starting to heat back up again around here no or pun intended but really you know it's very cyclical and it's been about 10 or 12 years since we've had a a drought and a warm a warm winter and so you know i I, nothing surprises me anymore it is what it is right when it's warm you wear shorts when it's cold you wear a coat (laughs) (laughs) that's it that's it that's the best way to put it Hey Jake, uh, look, I, I was on your uh, Facebook stalking you uh, last night. As Told you to stop my, that, Rob. <laughs> my, <laughs> my wife and I were finishing up some corporate taxes, and and we were calling them out to each other, swapping out in and out, typing it in, and because it, happy corporate taxes due today, uh, day today, March fifteenth. So, but anyway, um. Jake, I was on your Facebook, and I noticed a video that you had posted. Um, I guess it was early this morning, late last night. A fi- uh, it was about flying fish. 
you know, is that a yeah. common occurrence of running into those when you're filming uh, into the blue TV show? It, it is. We see them all the time. And, I mean, the, the ocean around the Keys, particularly on the on the Atlantic side of the Keys, is just full of those flying fish. And, of course, that's why the, uh, the mahi-mahi or dolphin, whatever you want to call them, that's why they're so prevalent down there because that's one of their main food sources. And so, you know, when we're running, we're running out on the open water um, in or out of where we're coming and going. We run into these flying fish all the time, and sometimes there's big schools of them, and they're just absolutely fascinating because, you know, they launch out of the water like a rocket, and, and they guide themselves with their wings. They don't flap their wings. They literally... They literally flap their tail really hard. They get airborne, and once they catch a wind current, they can literally glide like a like a paraglider glides for several hundred yards. And that's their uh, you know mechanism to defense mechanism to get away from predation underwater. The problem is when they get airborne, they got to deal with the frigate birds and the seagulls and uh, the different types of seabirds that are out there looking for them. So they got to get out of the water to get away from predator fish, and then they got to get back in the water to get away from the birds. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. But one of the things that we talk a lot about is how we would love to be able to film those things, but they're so random and they're so fast. We've always talked about how impossible that would be. And then, of course, BBC One comes out with, you know, a nature video, there's no telling how many hours they spent filming um, to get the, the footage they did. It is unbelievable. What did you think of it? No, I thought it was, I thought it was awesome. I actually thought that the, uh, the, the uh, it's Mahi Mahi, right? Mahi Mahi, before, yeah. Yeah, that was chasing the flying fish. Whoever got that footage, which that wasn't your footage, that was just a shared video, right? That was that was high budget. Those are the same people that do Planet Earth. It was that, okay. yeah. That's okay. That's a those are they have a they have multi million dollar budget, and they probably spent a month out on the water to get you know the thirty or forty clips that they got. It, it is so exciting to watch that. It's almost it almost goes back to the like uh, watching that lizard video. You're pulling for the lizard to get away from those snakes. Yeah. Kind of, kind of exactly. the same way that you're you're pulling for this flying fish to get away from the mahi mahi and the and the big uh, the frigate bird. You know yeah. what was funny funny about that is uh, <laughs> Jake. Uh, I don't know who it was. I can't remember who it was. But anyway, they commented uh, under where you shared it and said, "So the moral of the story is it just sucks to be yeah. a flying fish." <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. Thought, <laughs> yeah. But that was but, my hey, buddy look, down in Texas. Jeremiah Bennett. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. But look, guys, I want to uh, kind of turn our attention toward toward the the season that is upon us. Finally, uh, since today is opening day of turkey season, and uh, we're about to be joined by our great state of Mississippi's wild turkey program coordinator, Adam Butler. Um, Adam has worked for the state for a while, and uh, Adam, are you there? Yeah. Hey, guys. How are y'all? Good. How are you, man? Good. Doing good. I, doing, doing a lot better today. Well, uh, you got I, out I, and uh, go ahead, Rocky. I, no, I'm glad. I'm glad that we have somebody on here. 
I'm not going to say that. I'm glad we got somebody on here that, that, knows, <laughs> that, that knows some turkey. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, jo- I, I will say this about Josh and Jake. Both of them, man, Jake from a wildlife biology standpoint and Josh from just experience of hunting these things, man, it, this is going to be a great podcast with these three three brains put together and the dummy over here to ask these questions to you guys. The dummy in my <laughs> you, you guys are setting the bar pretty high before he even gets started. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, um, look, Adam, I got out and and uh, when I enjoyed the morning, I'll put it that way. I did not, I didn't kill a turkey, didn't even hear uh, a turkey, not turkey gobble anyway. But, um, and I mean, you were talking, I guess, yesterday, and you said you had taken some time off and were planning on hunting today. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I did. You know, the lead up to this time of the year is really busy for, for me and for our program at the Department of Wildlife, Fishes, and Parks. And so I kind of made it a point to, to put a put a lead request in for opening day and, and get a little reprieve and uh, was able to make it out at daylight this morning and had a little bit of success. So... It's always good to kind of get that monkey off your back on the opening day. Well, good. Yeah, I've heard I've heard a lot of mixed reports today. Some guys, uh, you know, turkeys did great where they were, and, and some were more like uh, apparently they were they were close to me because the turkeys weren't, weren't doing much. But um, but anyway, I, that, and that was something that that we did want to talk about was you know it, it was really warm end of January through most of February and even into March, um, and then it's kind of turned off a little cold, but I mean, you were talking the other day and uh, going over some stuff that, you know, that we might try to cover because it's a hot topic, is uh, is gobbling activity and kind of what it says about what the turkeys are doing, uh, you know, uh, especially in a year like this. So, you know, before today, before these last two or three cold kind of nasty days, if it, I mean, obviously the turkeys have been gobbling good, but what's kind of your your take on that because some guys seem to think you know season's going to run off and leave us behind and, and we're not going to get to enjoy it right and that's that's a that's kind of a common question or a common um thought that hey you know we have a you know in mississippi and a lot of the deep south we basically skipped winter this year you know we didn't really have a very cold winter at all and it was especially warm during january and february and you know up until this past week um, and so, you know, the, the, the males, the gobblers, you know, they, they've been feeling their oats and they've been gobbling pretty well for, for a while now. Um, but to me, the, the breeding season itself, while gobbling activity can be dictated a lot by sort of the near term weather, you know, what's the air temperature? Is it a nice bluebird day? Is it the kind of day when turkeys are going to gobble in, in late January or February? Um, that can ramp up and you, you hear a lot more early gobbling in, in years like this, but the actual nesting and, and breeding season itself is, is a little bit more hardwired into them. Um, so, you know, when the hen actually goes to nest and when all that stuff actually happens is, is largely dictated hormonally by the amount of daylight. So they're kind of, they're kind of keyed in on a certain period every year. And a year like this may move it a little bit, um, you know, it may may move that up a little bit, but it's not going to, you know, alter it by a month or something like that. Um, I actually think, you know, we had a really great acorn crop this year, 
in Mississippi. Um, and so if anything moves kind of when that really hard of the nesting season is, uh, it's probably the, the physiological condition of the hen. And so coming into a year like this where they're coming off of a, a pretty mild winter, they had a lot of acorns, that may actually move it up more because the hens are going to be in such good condition coming into the nesting season. That may actually move things up more um, than the actual air temperature itself. So, my take is, yeah, turkeys have been gobbling a lot kind of early, but, I, you know, and, and I've even heard a, a couple of people talking about, you know, seeing things that they think might be nesting activity, but we're still really, really early for that. Um, we may move it up a little bit, but, it, you know, I, I think we're still going to have a season that progresses pretty close to normal. Is there a, uh, Adam, this is Jake, is there a um, anatomical or physiological uh, feature in a turkey, like, for instance, in a white-tailed deer or a mule deer, the pineal gland, you know, gets stimulated by the photo period, which triggers the rut and blah, blah, blah. Is there something anatomically or physiologically uh, embedded in a turkey that, that um, helps trigger that photo period, uh, you know, r reproductive period? Yeah, it's it's it, it all works the same pretty much. I mean, it's the amount of daylight, and that's gonna that's gonna start stimulating those hormones in the hen that tell her body it's it's time. Um, and and again, you know the the condition of that hen can dictate that to a little bit. Like the the extreme example of that would be, you know, in Rio's when they get a really really bad drought year, and and the birds are really stressed. A, a lot of the hens out there will actually forego nesting. You know, they'll say, hey, I'm not even gonna try it this year conditions are so bad i'm stressed so bad um you know we don't really see that in easterns um you know for the most part adult easterns are, are almost all of them are going to try in a given year juveniles are a little bit more um a little bit more wishy-washy with it but we're going to see you know most of them give it a try but I, I, my opinion is that 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 condition that body condition can can play into kind of when it happens to some degree short-term weather is going to play into it a little bit but you know, at the end of the day, it, it's it's pretty hardwired with the amount of daylight. But gobbling activity is is you know turkeys gobble 365 days a year. We just hear mm -hmm. you know, most of it occurs during the springtime. Um, but you know the, the males just just like with us, you know they they know it's coming. They know it's this time of the year, and so if they're getting a warm day in late January or February, they're going to already start start thinking about it. Hey. Adam, this is Rocky. Let me ask you this. On average, what would you say is the ideal condition when hens are on the nest and turkeys are really, really looking? And they're, they're you know, you know, they always say it's about a ten day period in there that is the easiest time to kill a turkey. Where you are what would you say that that ideal 10 days is hmm, 10 days that's are a good question i um probably from in in mississippi um i would say april the 15th april the 20th till the end of our season may the 1st is the time when gobblers are going to be the most susceptible now obviously by the time we get to that point a lot of gobblers have died so there's not as many turkeys in the woods um you know some birds have been pressured and, and messed with but you know that's that's when we're getting into that part of the season where gobblers are going to be lonely 
um, they're gonna they're gonna do stupid things. They're gonna let their guard down. And and you know, my opinion is if you can if you can make it to that that last endpoint, and and you know, we have good weather during that time period, you know, you can you can really work on them um, then. And we see that you see that in goblin activity a little bit. Um, so one of the sources of data that we have on what turkey populations are doing in the state is a, a voluntary survey, an avid hunter survey called our Spring Goblin Hunter Survey. And uh, in Mississippi, we have about 1,200 turkey hunters that voluntarily keep a daily journal with them throughout the season on what they're seeing and hearing across the state. And if you look at, depending on where you're at in the state, so we're kind of a long state latitudinally so goblin activity does vary north to south in mississippi but if you if you look at it on the basis of number of gobbles per individual gobbler herd so that kind of you know how often is a given turkey goblin that that number pretty much steadily increases throughout the season and kind of reaches its peak for us in the last couple of weeks of the season so you may actually go early and hear you know, hear more goblin because you're hearing more individual birds. But if we're talking about gobbles per bird, that number tends to be higher later, uh, the later we go. Um, and I think that's because that's that's when you're getting to that point where hens are sitting on the nest and gobblers are getting desperate. Uh, Adam, look, the past, let's take the past three years. I know it would be, it would be three years ago um and last year or the year before last we should really here in the state of mississippi have a really good crop of two and three-year-old gobblers because just from riding around in june july august man there were poults everywhere um can i mean what the hatch has been what I guess what I'm trying to say is the hatch the past two to three years have been really really good. Yeah, it's it's been spotty. Um, for a lot of the central part of our state, um, this past summer, so the summer of 2016, um, the hatch was really really good. That, you know, another source of information that we use to to track turkey populations is our annual brood survey, which is an observational survey that you know everyone who works for the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, whether it's biologists, whether it's uh, conservation officers, um, WMA managers, uh, and also some of our partner organizations like um, the Forest Service, uh, certain timber companies, we give them a survey in June, July, and August, and they keep up with how many um, poults they're seeing, how many well, how many adult hens, how many adult gobblers, and how many poults they're seeing, and that allows us to kind of get an index of of um, turkey reproduction. A lot of other states do that, that similar survey. And this past summer, um, the central part of our state had a really, really good hatch. And southwest, the, really, uh, the central and southwest part of our state did very, very well. So, you know, that's going to translate into people seeing a lot more turkeys in the woods this spring. Um, the north end of our state had a great hatch the year before that. And I'm, I'm getting reports from that part of the world that you know they're they're really strong right now. So you're, you're right in that over the last two years we've had a couple of good hatches. Maybe not you know everywhere all at once, but different parts of the state over the last two years have done really well. Um, you know the last couple of three turkey seasons our harvest has been off, 
but I'm expecting that to start bouncing back a little bit. I think a lot of things have probably played into that, and I'm I'm optimistic at least that we're going to do a little bit better this year and probably start seeing a, a, a an increase for a couple of years because of exactly what you're getting at that we've had a you know a couple of summers now of average to a little above average reproduction across a lot of the state. I, I guess the reason I said that though, Adam, last year I didn't see a ton of jakes but the year before that holy moly man it, I, I i think that every hunt that i went on i saw five six seven jakes every single hunt yeah and, what what part of the state are you hunting in uh it would be kind of uh right across the 82 corridor yeah so that that you know that is that northern part of the state um you know, turkey population-wise has done really well the last couple of years. So they did have a good hatch, um, you know, I guess, what, three years back, what it would be, two and three years back for, for a, a good chunk of that north end of Mississippi. So, um, you know, depending on where – turkey populations are funny, though. You know, they they're, they rarely are you going to get, you know, back-to-back really strong hatches. It's usually kind of one in every three or four years for a given area that you get a really, really good hatch. and if you look at a state like Mississippi that has sort of a diversity of habitat types that we have, you know, where we've got, you know, the delta totally different from the rest of the state, piney woods down south, we've got kind of the, the northern end of the state, which is more hardwoods and open ag fields, pasture type stuff, and then, you know, the southwest part of Mississippi where you've got a lot of, of, of kind of mixed pine hardwoods and some of those rolling lurch hills down there. Um, you know, when you've got all of those different habitat types scattered around, you, your turkey populations are not all going to behave exactly the same, and that's what we see. So, you know, some areas will be up, other areas will be down. Um, but you know, as you're kind of alluding to, the last couple of years have generally been good for most of the state. There's still parts of Mississippi, the southeast part of the state, still hasn't really rebounded to where it was at, you know, say 10 years ago. Um, but like I said, we're, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic that you know some of the Tough times we've had over the last couple of years may be getting a little bit better. Adam, as as the turkey, I guess guru of of Mississippi in terms of game and fish and conservation, what's your biggest challenge professionally? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, you know, long term, you know, habitat always comes to kind of your forefront long term um and i you know we we've, we've got great habitat and turkey habitat fits well into a lot of the land uses that we have here in mississippi but you know you got to be active with it i worry about things like invasive species invasive plant species invasive animal species like wild hogs i think those are kind of long-term issues that we're going to have to really deal with um and then you know keeping that interest going for the next generation um you know, I, I I'm I'm 35 and I've been fascinated with turkey since I was probably five, um, and you know, that, trying to trying to get the, the generations coming up to have that same fascination and respect for the bird because that's what it will that's what it'll take. It'll take people always being interested in it, and always having a passion for turkeys, deer, ducks, whatever it may be, um, to ensure that you know, we're doing the things out on the landscape that are necessary to maintain abundant wildlife. 
I'm glad that uh, I'm glad you brought up the hogs because three years ago now we really really stepped up our uh, our team in terms of trying to you never will eradicate hogs but we we've we've done our best to try but uh, but on our alone, I mean immediately. Uh, I mean, within the first year, and especially now, two going on three years into it, the turkey population. I mean, we had a good, a good turkey population in our area to begin with, but I mean, it is it has increased dramatically now that we have far less hogs right here. Um, and we yeah, see and they, it, it, they are a major, major problem. They a- absolutely are. I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you guys how much economic damage they do to farmers and 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 all of that um the wildlife side of it is a little bit more difficult to quantify so we know that they compete for resources with you know deer turkeys all, all that um there's also some thought that just kind of the presence of hogs in and of itself may would be enough to uh cause turkeys to maybe act differently I, that's something we want to investigate more the, the reality is we don't have a lot of great research um, on sort of the impact that hogs have on turkeys particularly. And I get that question a lot. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, hogs are going to eat nests when they run across them. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And they're eating a lot of the same food resources that turkeys utilize, so they're having an impact there. Um, so I think, you know, no doubt about it, hogs can influence a turkey population, uh, particularly if you look at kind of a, a, a very local scale, like on a given property. If, if you go from not having any hogs to all of a sudden having an abundance of hogs, I think that, that may have some influence there. Um, the flip side, so I, I, I get this question a lot, how big a deal are hogs? The flip side, I always say, is, well, you know, I've heard of a lot of examples just like you, you just gave where, hey, we really hit the hogs hard and our turkeys rebounded back. I hear that a lot in Mississippi, so I, I do believe that that's, um, you know, that, that happens. The flip side, though, you look at a state like Florida. The central part of Florida has tremendously more wild hogs than, than Mississippi does, and they still have really abundant turkeys down there, and the same can be said for Texas. So I think we don't fully understand the, the influence that hogs have. Um, here recently, uh, the, the, our staff at the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, we've kind of been planning um, what we want to do research-wise over kind of our next year, next five-year uh, research cycle, um, and and we're sort of discussing some things with Mississippi State University to try to try to get a better handle on that question: How big a deal are hogs? How are they impacting things like deer and turkeys? What can be done about it? Um, and, and trying to quantify that relationship because you know right now we know they're bad. We know we don't like them. But we 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 can't exactly measure how big of an impact they really are actually having. So well, Adam, we now go ahead, Jake. Well, I was gonna I was gonna shift gears. So if you have something uh, relevant to that, then go ahead. But then when my question comes up, it's gonna it's gonna shift gears a little bit. No, no, no. Go right ahead. Okay. So Adam, being a, a Colorado resident that I am, you know, I hunt a lot of western turkeys from Colorado and New Mexico and uh, lots of Wyoming and and Nebraska and Kansas hunting going on. And, you know, I'm dealing with lots of hybrids. And it's something that we talked about 
a couple weeks ago on another podcast about how the Rio Eastern hybrids and the Rio Merriam hybrids, you know, have distributed themselves all over different uh, different regions. And it's something that I think about a lot because, you know, having grown up in the South and being a, uh, a lover of turkey hunting and, and turkey conservation and just the species itself, it's a little, you know, it's, it's, it's on my mind and I'm wondering how, if any, if anyone is, has raised eyebrows or open eyes about what's going on with the hybridization of these subspecies and whether, whether there's, you know, there's a concern about it in the future because they're spreading more and more across these states and really getting into the, the direct uh, habitats of, you know, pure strain DNA, uh, Merriam's, Rio's, Easterns, and even Osceola's. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I really don't know how to, where, where to, where to go with that one. Um, I, yeah, I, obviously there's going to be hybridization and depending on, you know, which, which scientists you talk to, um, you know, some people are, are more, particular about the, the differences in the subspecies than others. Um, you know, obviously, you're, you're, you're having some of that going on out west, uh, but I, I'm, I'm not aware of any you know, efforts to, to try to negate that. I, a lot of that probably has to do with um, sort of different habitat types and, and changes in habitat. You know, um, you know, some of the reason why you have separate subspecies are because those subspecies may be slightly better adapted to a certain right. set of conditions. And when those conditions are altered a little bit, another subspecies can, subspecies can come in and kind of exploit that. Um, but, you know, I, here here in, in, in the southeast, it's not an issue that we normally think about all that much. Um, you know, Osceola's and Easterns, that the, the little bit of genetic work that we have on turkeys show that there's very little difference between Osceola's and Eastern. Genetically, you know, Merriam's and Rio's are, are, are very different and, and um, genetically um, clearly different, but with Osceola's and Eastern, they're a lot, lot closer, so we don't really worry about it as much here in the, in the southeast as, as maybe what, what's going on out west. But if, that's, uh, if those conversations are happening out west, I, I've not really been clued into them. Well, Adam... I want to get into a little bit of science with you today because in yesterday's podcast we we had the um I don't know if you're a member of it Adam a member on Facebook of the Mississippi Turkey Hunters group it's a pretty large group um that's on Facebook uh we had Jamie Puckett the guy that started that group and the owner of that page on with us yesterday and Jamie is a die hard turkey hunter I guess you'd say. And yesterday we talked a little bit about, because I had Josh and Jamie on here, but we talked about the day in the life of a gobbler. And since we've got a guru like yourself on here with us, I want to hear what you have to say in a normal day. I want you to tell us, you know, because there's beginning beginner turkey hunters that are listening to this podcast and I think it'll give them a little bit of an advantage going into the woods, knowing what a gobbler does throughout the day. Can I mean, can you tell 
the people that are listening a little bit about what a turkey does during the day, a gobbler? <laughs> well, as, as a turkey hunter myself, I can tell you that, um, you know, ne- never bet on what a turkey is going to do because they're, I think they're going to wake up and, and do something every day totally the opposite of what you might expect. Um, but I, I guess I, 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 I understand your question and that kind of in general what, what's going on. And, and this time of the year, um, you know, here we are March the 15th. We're kind of in a sort of a transitional period. Uh, we've got a research project going on right now with Mississippi State where we have um, some tagged uh, turkeys with GPS transmitters on them. And I, I was looking at some of that data yesterday, and uh, one of the birds that we have on one of our study sites, we, we've actually got data from them going all the way back to uh, February of 2015. So he spent uh, most of the spring in, 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 in an area of kind of mixed pine, hardwood, fields. And then after the season in, in mid-May, he sort of shifted his range about a mile and a half uh, to two miles down to an area of, of a lot of pastures with some other mixed hardwoods. And he stayed there from May until March the 8th, so about a week ago. And and so his home range is for that whole time period, May, June, July, August, all the way through the fall and winter, um, right there in, in about a, a six to 800-acre area of pasture and hardwood. And then on March the 8th, he just wakes up and immediately decides, hey, I'm headed back to my spring range. And with this study, with it, the, the GPS technology is so cool. Um, you know, we're able to actually get locations every 15 minutes on some of these birds. And so he moved on, on March the 8th almost two miles back to the area where he had spent the prior spring. And throughout that day was sort of making big, big moves and is now, you know, for the last week or so, has kind of hung out right in that right that area. So the point is, this is, this is that, that's not unusual for turkeys to do. You know, um, if you're a deer hunter and you see a lot of turkeys uh, in December, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be there in the springtime. So this time of the year, they're in a really a state of transition um and you know here in probably another week or two they're going to kind of start settling into kind of where they're going to spend the spring and so i can't blame it on my neighbor that he's throwing out cracked <laughs> corn in my life that they left <laughs> that's exactly what <laughs> no. i was going to say man that's what everybody no, says <laughs> and you know you really you really can't um Honestly, with, with gobblers, food resources aren't dictating their movements this time of the year. They're they're going to look for hens, and hens are going to make those same range shifts. Maybe not necessarily as large a shift as the gobblers will can sometimes do. Um, but you know, hens are going to try to move themselves into more upland areas, more uh, areas with more early successional type habitat, nesting habitat, breeding habitat. Um, so they're making that transition too. They're usually moving away from kind of the bottomlands that they've spent the winter in. And you know, with Mississippi season starting as early as it does, we can, you know, right now we're you're kind of catching them still in sort of that winter pattern sometimes a little bit. Um, so you're still seeing them in those areas. But you know, usually by the first of April, um, they're going to have moved into those more upland areas, and that's where they're going to spend a good chunk of the spring. Um, you know, on any given day with a with a gobbler, again, being a turkey hunter, I, I hate to try to tell you what a gobbler wakes up and thinks every day, but um, 
right now, usually your your gobblers, you know, they're hanging with hen groups, but they're not hanging with them probably quite as tight as they may do here in a couple of weeks. And by that, I mean um, you've still got some gobbler groups that are together. They're with hens in the mornings. The hen groups haven't busted up yet. Uh, the gobbler groups may go off in the afternoon and kind of do their own thing a little bit. Probably in about two weeks, though, you know, they're going to be sticking with the hens pretty close throughout the day for a couple of weeks. And then you get into that period where the hens are going to, they're going to actually start leaving the gobblers uh, to go lay their eggs and then ultimately start incubating. And as we alluded to earlier, that's when particularly your more dominant gobblers can become really, really susceptible to harvest. So, you know, I guess for a newbie turkey hunter, you know, right now, uh, gobbler wakes up. Uh, usually he has a pretty good idea where that hen flock is. Um, they may not have necessarily roosted right with them this time of the season. That Sometimes they do, but, but not always. Now, later on, they're, a lot of times they're going to roost a lot closer with the hen groups. Um, but, you know, he, he flies down, he gobbles, the hens come to him, and then he just spends most of the day um, following following the hens around. Um, the, the, the gobblers that you can be really successful with this time of the season are usually your subdominant birds that are kind of hanging on the outskirts of that flock um you know they're 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 not going to necessarily participate in the the breeding activity so they're waiting on their chance and you know if you can if you can talk to those birds you can kind of lure them away from the main flock and and be um you know be successful there um either that or do you know do like i did this morning with basically get lucky and be in the right place at the right time but you know your your more dominant birds are they're going to be hanging pretty tight with the hens following them around throughout the day may break off with them in the afternoon um may or may not but you know they're right now they're they're hemmed up pretty good that gps tracking data that you just uh regurgitated is really interesting cuz that's i mean that is that suggests a uh migratory pattern is that not is that not correct yeah um it it really is neat stuff. The technology on that is so cool. You know, doing it the the old way with the VHF transmitters, where someone had to go out and and manually locate a, a given bird every day. So if you've got a sample size of, of thirty or forty or fifty birds, you know, you can only get a location per day on an individual bird. Now the technology allows us to, you know, literally see what that that individual is doing every fifteen minutes. And so yeah, you 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 know, we we've always known that they have those range shifts, but it allows us to be able to see it very, very clearly. Um, so I, you know, is it a true, it's not really a true migration in terms of, um, you know, like waterfowl would, would do in that, in that they're making huge moves, but a lot of individual turkeys are going to have areas that they exploit during the winter, and then they're going to move out of those areas into the spring. And, and sometimes those movements can be up to a couple of miles. We actually had one of our, uh, one of our transmitter gobblers got harvested by youth uh, earlier this week, and it, it was about three miles from where we had caught it and tagged it in December. So that, that, gives, you some idea you how big, yeah. Yeah, that gives you some idea uh, how big some of those moves can be. Wow, that's really interesting. Hey, Adam, okay, anyway, so what, you could um, um, send me that data over where I could take a look at it. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, I, don't, I don't think so, my friend. Well, what... Um, Okay, so do y'all have that type of um, research going on in in all parts of the state, or is it um, 
Is it relatively yeah, new? I mean, is it something y'all just started doing? Because um, I, I didn't know about it, that, so that that's really really cool. Yeah, this is our this is our first our 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 first here in Mississippi uh, foray into using the GPS stuff. It, it, that technology has been around for I don't know eight or ten years, um, and some other states have have uh, done a lot more with that than we have. This is our first project doing it. So the study that that I'm referencing right now, we do have birds in different parts of the state. Um, kind of a extensive study rather than intensive. So rather than having a really big sample size on a small area or on one study site, we've got um, more moderate numbers of birds tagged at about what four four different sites right now um, scattered across the state. So the the objective is to try to use this new technology to look at movements uh, across different habitat types. And you know we hope to ultimately uh, have a greater understanding of kind of the, the needs of the bird, and 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 even be able to incorporate some predictive ability to be able to say, okay, uh, you know, if you were to alter your property in such a way, how would that probably influence the way turkeys utilize that based on what we know from these tag turkeys in these different regions? So it's pretty cool stuff, <laughs> and, and you know, being a a student of turkeys myself and, a, and an avid turkey hunter man, it, it's just really neat looking at those movements at, at that scale. Uh, the the technology has really changed the game in turkey research over the last, like I said, 10 years or so. It's like watching your Uber driver on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's good stuff. That's, that's really good stuff, Adam. Definitely eye-opening and perhaps, you know, through this GPS technology that you guys are using and a lot of the data that you have that has that sort of squashed theories and turned them into facts really probably answers a lot of questions for people and um and and changes what, you know, people have traditionally thought about turkeys and how they range or you know, how they move or how they act on a daily basis or an annual yeah, basis. Absolutely. It, and it I mean the the technology is so neat in that you know, you can literally, I remember a bird we had last year that you could literally see him going every day to feed under the same oak tree. You know, when you zoom in on the satellite images, you could, you could pick wow. that, that, level, that level of resolution up. So it's really neat. And, that, you know, we'll, we're going to be able to do some, um, you know, high-level analysis with some of this data, but I, I, I keep telling people just being able to show those, you know, show a, a map of an area you know, a satellite image with the dots overlaying it just to, to anybody, to any turkey hunter that looks at that, it really uh, drives home how important certain habitat features are, how important some of the bottoms and the corridors and the roadways and things like that are. It's really neat stuff. How do we how do we gain, uh, does the public have access to any of that information in case, you know, some listeners like myself actually want to go see some of that stuff do we have access to that well yeah sure not 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 today but you know when the project wraps up you know i i plan on using a lot of i'm not going to not going to give away gps coordinates but sure. like i said no, kind no, of no. using the 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 satellite pictures of uh an aerial photo of the study area and then overlaying that with points because like i said the, the educational value of that you know exactly. to somebody that's wanting to manage land is really 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 good um so yeah we'll we'll make all of that stuff you know publicly available through um 
you know, uh, extension publications and things like that with Mississippi State, who who are our partner on the project. You know, when the project wraps up. Uh huh. Hey, you got that monkey off your back this morning. You knew exactly where he was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> Why are no, we not surprised? I, I, I had to do it. I had to do it the old-fashioned way, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, but that's, look, that really it, is. There, there's, uh, there's too much. Uh, you would think trapping turkeys would be easy, but it's not. And there's way too much goes into that. I, I would have hated myself to have shot one of our radio caller birds, <laughs> knowing how much time <laughs> goes into truth. trying to catch those things. Cecil the oh, turkey. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, no, so I mean, that, that's some. So y'all ahead, have hens. Y'all have hens that, that have radio transmitters also, right? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, it's not did, just uh, gobblers. gobblers and hens. Yeah, right. We did gobblers and hens for this project. That is, I mean, that's some eye-opening stuff. That is, that's cool. I mean, I that that is really, really neat. Did you see a huge range on the hens themselves? I, I mean, I know you went into it just a little bit, but, I mean, it, from the hen standpoint, what, what, what did you see from that standpoint? Um, you know, what what we've seen with this project as far as the home range sizes has not been all that different from what you know past studies have shown. And that's that's something that people don't appreciate a lot, particularly turkey hunters, because you know, as a as a turkey hunter, you know, we're used to going and hearing the same gobbler gobbling from the same tree, um, you know, day after day after day. And it's true that within, you know, particularly within a given season, they can have relatively small home ranges. You know, they may only use a few hundred acres, you know, at a, at a given point in the year. But the average home range size for, for a male turkey in Mississippi, you know, across multiple, multiple studies going back 40 years almost, is about six square miles. That's about how big an area that they're going to use you know, throughout the year. Hens is a little bit wow. smaller than that. You know, a hen home range, you know, may be uh, 1,500 acres or, or, or a little north of that. Um, gobblers are going to be almost twice as big as that. But that's, you know, that's looking at the whole entirety of the year. So, again, they're making these movements based on when certain food resources are coming available in the fall and the winter. They, they you know, they, they really concentrate in on hard mass um, where, where they can find it. And then in the springtime, they're going to shift out to, to trying to find those nesting and brooding areas, those upland-type areas. And then, you know, in the summer, they tend to be kind of nomadic as well. So if you look at what they need throughout the whole course of the year, you know, it takes a pretty big area to fill those needs or a property that's managed with a really high level of diversity. You kind of got to have, you know, the, managing for turkeys as far as habitat goes is really all about having a lot of different stuff and having it in close proximity. So if you if you can do that successfully and have a whole lot of different habitat types well managed close to one another, you're going to see smaller ranges and your birds aren't going to have to move as far. Um, but it's, like I said, not unusual at all to see really large home ranges because they use yeah. such different types of resources throughout the year. Yeah, I think that's still, um, I think that's still a lot more dramatic of a, of a shift than people expect. I, I know it is for me. I mean, I and I definitely, you know, see turkeys come and go through the winter and, and summer and everything. But, um, I mean that that's 
that's a lot of ground to cover. Um, and which is, I don't know, that that's eye-opening stuff. I know I keep saying that, but that mm-hmm. is really, really cool stuff. I, hey, I got me, it. I wanna, uh, go ahead, Jake. Uh, go ahead. I got yeah. I got one last question. So, and, and this is gonna. I'm gonna generalize this. Um, just because it has to be generalized, but so let's say you have a traditional roost, particularly for hens, a hen group. When they start laying eggs and they they mosey off to lay their eggs, have you guys tracked the distance from where how far a turkey of a, a hen turkey will roam from a traditional roost site to lay her eggs and and I'm wondering, do hens select the same general area year after year to uh, to lay their eggs and build the nest? Um, so that's that's a that's a great question. Um, there there is some research that would suggest that um, they do. I mean, they, you know, ducks can that literally nest in the same nest bowl year after year. Turkeys are not going to be, you know, that, they're not going to have that high of a a fidelity to a certain site, but they do tend to kind of go back to the same general areas, maybe. Um, And when I say general areas, I mean, we may be talking, you know, a couple hundred acre area that um, where they nested a year before. Particularly if they were successful, they'll go back there. Now, if they're unsuccessful, all bets may be off, but they, you know, they have some fidelity to a given area, but not necessarily to like the same location, if you will. And as far as like the the first part of your question, how it how that relates to where their traditional roosts are, you know, when we're talking easterns, um, you do have those areas that turkeys like to roost over and over again. But we're, you know, we're not going to be limited by roost sites the way you might would see with western birds, where Right. You know, they they are very much tied to a specific roost, and you know where they can nest is is sort of dictated by where those roosts are. Um, mm-hmm. We don't we don't really have that. I mean, you know, woodlands are, are generally not going to be a limited factor, you know, in, in a state like Mississippi. So they've got a lot of they do have some certain spots they like to roost, but they're not limited by that by any means. Uh, I'm I'm going to close with this question, Adam. Do you, do you see any correlation between people that manage habitat for deer and people that do you see those people are they successful in turkey management because of their deer management? Yeah, to a degree. I mean, active management is going to always be the key to you know having having good wildlife habitat, no matter what you're talking about. Um, you know, deer and turkeys do share uh, some overlap, and, and, and in some ways they don't. Um, but people who are providing, you know, uh, trying to provide maximum food resources for deer, in whether they're doing that through a really good uh, food plot program, whether they're doing that through timber harvest, um, a lot of those practices um can go can go both ways now you know with deer obviously they need a lot thicker cover than than turkeys like so you could you could take it too far where it would be uh on the deer side where it would would you start losing value turkey wise but um 
you know, great deer bedding cover is also going to be great turkey nesting cover. So um, a lot of that stuff goes together, and, you know, we definitely see properties that are that are active and that are purposeful in their management um, do tend to have more turkeys year in, year out than places that are just kind of at the, at the whim of the environment or at the whim of the hatch or whatever. Yeah, I, I think active, man- active a- management is the key, you know. Yeah, I think you see a lot of the clubs that are really successful at deer and deer habitat management are really successful when it comes to turkeys also. Uh, I mean, um, I think that a, a lot of what you just said, they go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. It's all wildlife absolutely. management, right? At the end of the day, it's just wildlife management, timber management. That's right. Great, you know, areas that are going to provide, you know, great deer browse are, are a lot of cases going to provide good turkey brood habitat. Areas that provide good deer bedding cover are going to provide good turkey nesting cover. So, you know, as long as you're um, ensuring that you have kind of those those so some mixed in open vista type uh, big woods that turkeys like, um, you know, travel corridors, those sort of things, you can you can do a lot of things that are going to produce um, deer browse. Uh, deer bedding cover and stuff like that, and they're going to benefit turkeys because you're making brood cover and nesting cover when you're doing that. So, yeah, they definitely go hand in hand. Well, People Adam just don't realize well. how how important hunters are to conservation. I mean, we, you know, it seems like there's not a day that goes by that I don't hear about it or think about it that, you know, not it's not just an excuse for the pro hunter um, to use, you know, in any in a political arena or whatever to defend themselves, it's the truth about hunting and particularly with the quality management programs that people have engaged in on their private properties from waterfowl to turkeys to deer or whatever else they're trying to grow is just a huge asset to conservation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think about that every day because, you know, my, my salary is paid by, hunting license dollars i'm sure i don't have mm-hmm. to tell you guys this but you know, your state <laughs> wildlife agencies you know we're not taking general fund money you know we're we're funded directly by hunting license sales and the Pittman robertson mm-hmm. excise tax that, that matches those and so you know everything i do i think you know am, am i am i today being a good steward of those resources that the hunter base in mississippi has provided me to work with and you know i Absolutely, hunters are the number one conservationist, no doubt about it. Well, Adam, I, I look, I, I know I speak for all three of us. Thank you for taking the time to come on and talk a little bit of turkeys with us because, man, that's some great, great stuff. That's some yeah, great man, information. I appreciate it. Thank I, you so much. I, as I told you guys yeah. the other day, this is my first podcast. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a lot of fun having you, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I mean, again, I really it, there's some some info in there that uh, that I, I'm kind of like Jake. I, I'll probably be sitting at a computer the day that you tell me I can access that information <laughs> because I, that, <laughs> yeah, it's that, just interesting, it's just I mean, intriguing. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely, and it's really um, I don't know. That, that's really cool. I, I'm glad to. Glad, glad to well, hear it's, that it's like and know I, it's, what's going on. It is, it is like I told you guys that I, I've been fascinated with turkey since I've probably been big enough to walk, and I, I still, you know, more and more realize all the time I, I don't know very much about turkeys at all. They always teach me something new, and and you know, I, I think my job won't be fun anymore if I ever think I know it all. So, 
that, that's the magic where I can. <laughs> that's the beauty of science and technology in that you just continue to learn and realize how little you actually do know about it. Yeah. That, you hit it you hit it on the head, you know, the technology is definitely allowing us to see things and, and do right all the time. Well, like look, before we go, like we do every week, um, we wanna thank Joseph Presley at Four Corner Properties for being the title sponsor of the On the X podcast. Now if you're looking for a track of deer, turkey, duck, whatever it may be in the state of Mississippi, Arkansas or Louisiana, give Joseph a call. Um, I, I was actually on the phone with Joseph this morning talking about a track of land that they have down in the Warren County, Issaquina area. I am sure that it is loaded with turkey and deer, and I think it borders on the Delta. So if you're looking for that piece of property, give Joseph a call at Four Corner Properties there in Ridgeland, Mississippi. But guys, look, before we close it out, We'll have our session of final thoughts. Jake, I'll let you go first this week. What's your, what's your final thought for us there, brother? Boy, I'm actually in deep thought. <laughs> I'm having a hallmark moment because, you know, some of the information that um, that was revealed in this podcast is really interesting and um, kind of caught me off guard because I didn't realize we were going to be talking about the technology and, and the science of of tracking these birds and, and kind of what it reveals. So, you know, really my final thought is, you know, just when you think you know something, like Adam said earlier, just when you think you know a lot about something, you know, you get, you get slapped in the face with reality and realize you just don't know that much at all. Well, Josh, I'll let you go. I'll let you go next. I want to, I want to thank Adam for everything you do for, for the state and, uh, for, for really taking it, you know, I mean, not that you had to say it, but we can tell you really take take your job seriously, and uh, I'm I'm proud to have people like you uh, that that are out there, you know, putting a, a positive foot forward every day for for our our wildlife and 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 everything that uh, or in all the areas that, that that it lives in. So, man, I just really appreciate all the all the crazy uh, long hours and effort you put into it because I know some days it. It's, uh, it's a lot, a lot of work for what seems like a little reward, but, but really and truly, it's a it's a lot of reward, man, and we, we really appreciate you for it. Amen. Thanks. Thanks, guys. That means a lot to me. Adam, look, I, I, I will concur with Josh. Look, I really appreciate you coming on here. I really appreciate what you do every day because you put great information way outside of this podcast into a lot of people's hands and, and uh, thank you for taking time out of your day to come on here with us you know it's it's kind of funny you talking about gps one of my farmers actually just texted me and dropped a pin and he said hoss of a bird right here so <laughs> what, what? <laughs> uh, I'm actually, i think i know where I'm you're going to be tomorrow then huh <laughs> No, I, I'm actually got a, a turkey decoy company that's that's making some decoys that are coming in this weekend, and we're we're going this weekend. I told him to. We were actually going tomorrow, but this cold weather. I called him and I said, "Look, just wait a couple of days. Let's let's let it warm up, and you know, get these birds feeling right again, and we'll go this weekend." Because I think that uh, Saturday and Sunday and Monday look like really really good days 
here in the state of Mississippi. I know Sunday and Monday do. I, I think it's a really good chance of rain for us Saturday, but uh, Sunday and Monday look really good. Yeah, but, I think uh, you're kinda, absolutely right about that. My, my, my perfect conditions are about, you know, a, a daytime high of about 75 and a nighttime low of about 48 or 50. That's, that's when I think they really are going to do it. Well, it's just, I thought it was hilarious that this guy's texting me as you're talking about GPS coordinates on turkeys, and this guy's texting me uh, because he knew I, I'm staying at his place, one of one of my farmers, and anyway, he's dropping pins of where he's seeing gobblers out in the field strutting right now. <laughs> so, anyway. Good to have um, friends like that. You don't yeah, need science yeah. and technology, Rocky. You just got buddies. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, guys, well, for Josh and Jake and Adam, I want to thank you for joining this edition of the On the X podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com.